I like the balance, the teaching and the research and the service components all mixed together. It's not any one thing that I'm spending my entire day on. I can balance them. I like the flexibility where I can be like, okay, I have to get these things done. Okay, I can balance. Now I can focus on some research for this week because I'm caught up. And juggling that suits my nature well. And I also really like helping students. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David List, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPause Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. FurPaws Consulting has deep expertise in helping veterinary practices reach their full potential for all types of practices, whether specialty, emergency, or general practice, by working alongside the practice owner and manager. Are you a practice owner or practice manager with a challenge and not enough bandwidth to tackle it? Reach out to me, Andrea Crabtree, owner of FurPaws Consulting, with the question that keeps you up at night. I'm able to provide expertise and insight to navigate those tricky obstacles. Find my info in the show notes. Email me at andrea at furpaws.us or check out my website at www.furpawsconsulting.com. Welcome back, positive leadership listeners. Today we have an amazing guest. I'm super excited to have Lauren Forsyth. And get this, an assistant professor of social and administrative pharmacy at the University of Finlay College of Pharmacy. And she's the veterinary medical controlled substance program manager at the Department of Veterinary Clinical Medicine at the University of Illinois. Dr. Lauren Forsythe is a PharmD and a DICVP. And Lauren, I have no idea what any of that means. So please, without having to read your crazy bio, tell me all about yourself and how you got to be in all these great positions that you're here today. So you're definitely not alone. Nobody ever knows what any of that stuff means. (laughs) Good, good, good. I feel like it's made up some days. Yeah, right. So I grew up in Pennsylvania and my parents are both veterinarians. They bought their own private practice right before I was born. Think perfect thing to do right before you have a baby. Sure, right. And Sounds logical. Yeah. So I grew up uh, on the floor of a vet clinic, and they treated anything that came in the door 24-7 in rural western Pennsylvania. So I got exposed to all kinds of animals. I was put in a dog cage, I'm sure, a few times as a toddler. Right, right. And I have pictures playing with a bear cub that they were treating at one point. Oh, wow. So lots of fun experiences, but I very quickly learned that when people asked if I wanted to be a vet, my answer was, no way. I was like, you work way too hard, and why would I want to go out in cold Pennsylvania winters on farm calls? And that was my perception of vet med. Had I actually seen veterinary specialty medicine, I might have wanted to do that. 
but I hadn't seen that side. So I said, nope, not doing private practice. But I liked math. I liked science. I liked healthcare. And so I decided to go to pharmacy school. The plan was that I was going to go to school, get through pharmacy school, work in the retail pharmacy setting. I had a friend who worked for Rite Aid. I'm like, that sounds like it could work. She has time to show her horses. I'll have time to show. That's what I'm going to do. And then halfway through pharmacy school, I was in my compounding class and my compounding professor found out about the fact that I showed horses and my parents were vets. And he asked if I had ever considered veterinary pharmacy because there's lots of compounding in that. And I was like, no, I didn't know that was a thing, but that sounds perfect. That's what I want to do. And so I found my way into vet pharmacy throughout the rest of pharmacy school. And after pharmacy school, I was the first veterinary pharmacy resident at Purdue's Vet Teaching Hospital. So that's a one-year program after pharmacy school to specialize in the vet side of it. So I spent the entire year doing just veterinary pharmacy. When I finished that, I went out to California to UC Davis, and I spent three years there as a clinical veterinary pharmacist in their vet teaching hospital. I say that was my California adventure. It was kind of fun living somewhere that I could make day trips to Napa. I drank lots of good wine. I had no children at that point, so it was great. And then I had a kid. And I was like, okay, maybe I don't want to live in California forever. So I looked for some other opportunities, and Illinois happened to be looking for someone to come revamp their teaching hospital pharmacy. And I had said my dream job was to be a pharmacist running a pharmacy in a veterinary teaching hospital. So here was the opportunity to go do that. And when I came to visit Illinois and landed um, in the middle of a cornfield on a tiny plane, I'm like, oh, this feels like home. So I came back to the Midwest, to Illinois, and I spent four years um, as the pharmacy service head at the University of Illinois, running their pharmacy and their vet teaching hospital. Realized with that, there was a lot to do with controlled substances. And there was a lot of things that needed to be overseen, a lot of processes to improve, and the controlled substance questions and lack of knowledge, insight, all of those problems spanned not just the vet school, but the entire university. And while I was there, the university started developing their program to oversee their controlled substance surveillance throughout the entire campus. And I got to be involved in developing that program and serving as a subject matter expert for that. And I really liked the regulatory stuff. So that was so much fun. I was getting a little bit drained, not living near family and not being able to have the balance I wanted with, at this point, I had three kids and was curious what I could do that would bring me back closer to family. My family's in Pennsylvania. My husband's is in Ohio. The position opened up at my alma mater at University of Finley to teach in their pharmacy school. Well, I had loved my time there before and I loved the small school feel and I was like, well, I could go back. I miss teaching pharmacy students. I've been teaching vet students for seven years now. I would love to be able to go back and teach these students the things that as a student, I'm like, no, I don't need to know this. So I came back. I've been here just since August and I teach pharmacy students. I will be teaching them vet pharmacy eventually, but for right now, I'm teaching them the business aspect and those extra skills that don't really fit anywhere else how to manage medication errors, their law course, how to manage a pharmacy their regulatory compliance type things, their business side, all those different things that I've been teaching in vet school, the management aspect type things that I really enjoy. Now I'm teaching them to pharmacy students. But Illinois is still trying to build their controlled substance program. As my role in teaching at a pharmacy school, I can use some of my time to work basically using my pharmacist knowledge, do clinical practice of some type. So I'm doing that by helping Illinois 
from a remote location, build their controlled substance surveillance program and focusing in on that area that I really enjoyed, um, which was that regulatory aspect. So I get a little bit of both worlds right now, which is really enjoyable, really rewarding. And I have family close by, which is great. I also enjoy speaking and writing and helping vets. I mean, my passion for getting into this was my parents' private practice and the fact that they were running their own show and I saw all of the struggles in private practice. Pharmacy education was like, oh, I could help you with these things. I was taught how to do this stuff. So I like helping vets and I'm starting my own consulting uh, business, Foresight Pharma Solutions, to do some more of that writing and speaking and consulting to help those veterinarians and help them address some of their drug management concepts, their controlled substances, their compounding questions, their client counseling on medications, their medical error management and prevention strategies, those things that are pharmacy related, but we don't get a whole lot of in vet school. So that's kind of how I've waved my way around the country and through all the different titles and just sort of collected them along the way. Very cool. What a, what a journey. The DICVP in my description is the Diplomat of International College of Veterinary Pharmacy. And so that's my specialty. That was my certification in veterinary pharmacy, which I became eligible to test for after my residency. And when you say you teach pharmacy students, I assume then that's human pharmacy students versus at the veterinary school, then that's specific to your veterinary students. Yes. Yeah. The pharmacy school is human-based with any vet content being elective at this point. Pharmacy students can do clinical rotations where they can go to vet schools and do their rotations there and start to learn veterinary pharmacy. Yeah. And I find that frustrating that human pharmacy students then are not required to take that piece of veterinary uh, pharmacy, and yet they're allowed to fill drugs from a veterinary pharmacy because I often see them where they're changing our prescriptions because, oh, that's not right. And I'm like, "Mm, actually, it is right. When's that happening? When is that piece going to come mandatory? When I graduated uh, pharmacy school, I said that during my career, I wanted to see the day that vet pharmacy was covered on the pharmacy board exams, because that's what will get it pushed into as mandatory curriculum in the pharmacy school is when they have to take it on the boards. Yeah, that's and fantastic. Yeah. So I'm hoping we'll get there. We're not there yet, but we're making steps in the right direction in that the definition of patient has now been expanded to include non-human species which opens the door to more educational opportunities. I just submitted a suggestion to the Ohio Pharmacists Association that we should have a medication safety CE on veterinary prescription error prevention for pharmacists because medication safety is a required CE topic for pharmacists in Ohio. And so I'm hoping through this role in the pharmacy school, I can help drive some of that change because now I'm internal to the pharmacy academia world, whereas I had been in the vet world, which is where most vet pharmacists are located. And it's harder from the outside to make changes to a world you're not part of. Sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Okay. Well, I love it. I love your journey. I love the path that you've taken. It's a windy one and, and yeah, keep doing it. See, so much better than a stuffy bio, right? Like I just like to hear (laughs) the journey. Right. So talk to me about a favorite book or podcast or CE or something that had a lasting effect on you, something that's currently on your nightstand now, or that has in the past, that's just been you know, something that you've treasured? There's a number of different books I love to read, and I alternate between fiction and nonfiction because I think there's so much to be learned. And I like to read about things that are nonfiction, but maybe not directly related to what I do. I recently picked up a book by Malcolm Gladwell. I like all of his stuff that I've read. It was Talking to Strangers. I was expecting a book about how to have engaging conversations with people you don't know. That's not what I actually got, but what I got was better. 
because it was really insightful on the concepts of the assumptions we make when we're faced with somebody and how those assumptions have shaped history. And they go into historical context, like why didn't anyone see Hitler coming when people met with him? And why has it been affected by how policing works? How does that affect based on assumptions made when we glance at somebody? How does that affect our daily lives? So it really makes me pause and think, okay, what assumptions am I bringing to a situation? And are these appropriate? Sometimes they are. But should I question it? So I just find things like that really interesting. And that's one of the more recent ones. I've also read a book. I'm not remembering the author, but it was called White Market Drugs. And it was about the various opioid epidemics that we've had in the United States since the 1800s. Because the one we have currently isn't the only one we've really ever had. They've just evolved over time. And how the social demographics have been affected differently is discussed in the historical context throughout this. So it was really educational. And oh, I, I think that was interesting. That. Yeah, right. A little bit of history in there. Huh, that's yeah. very cool. I try to pull that into my controlled substance CE talks that I do and give some perspective right. on some of these things. Fan- that's fantastic. Oh my God, I can't wait to dig more into it. <laughs> <laughs> Staying with your academic career, what keeps you interested about academia? And obviously on the veterinary side, I'm sure a lot of your training is, is a lot of kind of clinical pharmacy you know, we do kind of fun stuff like TPN and other crazy things in vet med. But what brings you back to academia and that makes your forever home? I like the balance, the teaching and the research and the service components all mixed together. It's not any one thing that I'm spending my entire day on. I can balance them. I like the flexibility where I can be like, okay, I have to get these things done. Okay, I can balance. Now I can focus on some research for this week because I'm caught up. And juggling that suits my nature well. And I also really like helping students. I look back on my journey and I was pushed up by a lot of great mentors and teachers over the years and people that really helped me make connections and get where I am. So to be able to give back and help students and be like, oh, you've got so much potential. This is so exciting and help them find their way is really rewarding and fun to do. So let's bring this around to the veterinary practice and specifically a veterinary practice manager. That's what our audience is. If we are to say, how does pharmacy fit in a practice manager in our realm, like what we take care of? Why should we as a practice managers be concerned with pharmacy and specifically even diving into pharmacy deeper to say, what do we need to worry about? Is it compounding an online store? Like you talked about drug errors, DEA compliance. So talk to us a little about what are the areas that we should have on our radar? I think we can break those areas into two big picture buckets, legal compliance and maximizing profit. And legal compliance is a must. It's complicated. It's gray. It's hard to dig into. It varies so much by Let's state. Let's be real and say that it's shit all the way okay. around. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Every state does it different. Nobody knows if the pharmacy board is in charge or the vet board's in charge or they're going to have a turf uh, war. Or the DEA is yeah. in charge. Yes, right, exactly. Or they say conflicting things in the regs and you're yep. like, which one do we go with? Yep. Uh, Who's got the higher the ranking? Great, the great DEA inspectors who will say, oh, well, it depends on the inspector you see because we all have different opinions. Very helpful. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, not at all. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) So let's go back to it's all shit. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So there's that aspect. And there's the considerations of what do we have to do to be compliant? Where do we find those laws? How do we oversee this? And how do we make sure everyone in the practice, especially our doctors who probably have bigger things on their minds than following a set of policies and SOPs, are going to do what they need to do to be compliant? 
so that we have all of our ducks in a row. And that on its own can be like herding cats. So we need to consider which regulations apply, where to find them, both federal and state, and then how to break down what applies in the veterinary world for drugs in your specific location. So that's a starting point with that. That's going to take up a lot of time and bandwidth. The other aspect is the maximizing profit. The drug sales can be very profitable in veterinary medicine. And historically, they were a huge component of a practice's profit was that drug dispensing aspect. I think that that is dwindling to some extent, partly because in vet schools, we're not teaching these vet students how to come out and manage drugs at all, their own medications. And so I think there's some fear to that aspect of it. And they're content to write prescriptions to outside pharmacies. When they're in teaching hospitals, they put in their prescriptions and show up and we hand them finished drugs to give to the patients. So they miss that whole aspect. And so I think they're content to say, yeah, let the pharmacies do it. I'm going to do medicine. And maybe there's an argument to be made, but I think we're missing out on some profit opportunity with that because there still is that profitability. Then there's the concept of the online pharmacies that you can build your practice version of. And so you can still get some profit with overhead taken out to compensate for the pharmacy platform. So there's that to consider. And then there's the time and effort and issues with the errors you mentioned with filling meds with outside pharmacies and juggling that. So those things need to be weighed and considered for each individual practice. What makes the most sense from a workflow from a patient needs? Are you using a wide variety of drugs or using a very small subset of drugs? What's the availability in the local pharmacies? Can you price competitively to them? Is it worth your time? And considering those aspects, most doctors and practice owners are unlikely to do that, I think. I think that's where the practice managers can really come in and start bringing that knowledge and coming up with a proposal. And I think if somebody goes to the doctors and practice owners and says, here's how we should do this to make a profit, then they're going to listen because they probably have no clue. Yeah, it's a direct well, that's a lot of opportunity. Impact. Yeah. Can you give us, and maybe it's several, but resources that we can go to you said the individual state, or maybe it's our veterinary medical board, or it's the governing pharmacy board or the DEA. Where do we need to spin our wheels looking for things? And obviously, we've got different states, different countries listening. So, so be aware of the audience there. But what resources can you share with us that we should at least start going down that rabbit hole? The first place you should start is the state Veterinary Practice Act and figuring out in your state if it's the Veterinary Board and the Vet Practice Act that's going to cover all your drug rules, dispensing, anyone who's going to possibly come in and look, or if there's a pharmacy board component. Some states have that, some don't. If there's a pharmacy board component, then I would say that's your second stop. That's going to get you the rules such as labeling, dispensing, Mm -hmm. record keeping. Then you have your controlled substance side. Controlled substances, regardless of state, you're going to need to go to your State Controlled Substance Act and the Federal Controlled Substance Act. The stricter one applies, and that's going to be the big regulations for all your controlled substances. They're hard to sort through. I recommend CE and attending Mm -hmm. sessions on that to sort of break Mm -hmm. down how to look at those regulations because there's a lot to digest, but you also do have to just read your state ones. And just reading them and understanding them, yeah. From Mm -hmm. the compounding aspect... There's legislation being pushed out. I don't know that it's necessarily worth the effort to go digging into a lot of it unless you're doing in-house compounding, which I think the majority of people are not doing that much of. But to get a handle on that, I actually was saying I couldn't find any good references to direct people to. So I've recently released a book on drug compounding for veterinary professionals. 
it just came out from Wiley and it's written for veterinary professionals on compounding. It explains what to consider with compounding pharmacies and the risk and benefits of compounded meds. And it talks about in-house compounding as well, but it's focused for anybody who's using compounded meds to treat patients. It highlights some of the big picture regulations and what they're trying to do. So it gives mm-hmm. a starting point on how to go into those. Interesting. Many, many, many years ago when we started, I guess the kind of the evolution was probably some of the online pharmacies and some of the big box retailers, Costco, Target, all of them started to build pharmacies inside of their four walls. And we started with the weird clients that wanted to start taking prescriptions over to them to get filled. And it was this weird, like, can we do it? Can we not? Pharmacists weren't sure. Then it all happened. And now it's like almost secondhand. A lot of them, a lot of them do it. But there's still a bit of, I would say, probably unspoken tension. So these are usually the two things that happen. One is that we send a script over, whether it's electronically or with a printed script, and a probably a pharmacist or pharmacy tech human calls the hospital and is like, we can't bill this, or this isn't right, or wrong dosing, you know, like, or you don't have an NDC number, some of these other things. And the other thing that seems to happen is sometimes they will literally just change the prescription or fill something or say, you know, we don't carry that, which they don't understand, like prednisolone versus prednisone or whatever some of these things are. So can you tell us a little bit about why that kind of happens and what a veterinary practice could do to prevent that? Yeah, all of that big issues. And I think it largely stems back to the lack of education that pharmacists have on veterinary medications, how to evaluate them, and the expectations. I So I say the way to address it is to go back to the education side. Keep in mind that they are trying to do their jobs. One thing to keep in perspective is that pharmacists have a legal requirement to evaluate every prescription for accuracy, appropriateness, and validity. Um, and that is really pushed through uncontrolled substances. That's mm-hmm. going to be the one they're most likely called out on, but they have that mm-hmm. obligation for any prescription. Okay. But they don't have necessarily have any references to check doses. In a typical mm-hmm. chain pharmacy, the pharmacy determines what references they're going to provide their pharmacist. They provide them electronically. The pharmacist has access to those predetermined references and their browser's locked down. So I worked at Rite Aid as like moonlighting when I was in California. And a veterinary drug reference was not a required reference. And generally in states where it's not a required reference, mm-hmm. the chain pharmacies do not provide it. So mm-hmm. if I wanted to check a dose for a veterinary medication, I had to pull out plums on my phone and use my personal subscription to do that because I could not in any way look wow. it up on a pharmacy computer. And that's if right. you even knew what plums is. Right. So that's right. assuming that we know. And there are right. some pharmacists who maybe had a course in school that said, hey, this exists. Right, right. But they, having wow. access to it's a whole different story. And What's even crazier is that all of those big boxers are pushing the veterinary services yeah, exactly. and telling them, that, you know, like, but they don't have any references for the pharmacist to look up. The, like, that's crazy. Holy yep. moly. They're looking at it from a profit standpoint. It is money in their pocket because it's cash pay and they don't have insurance contracts to worry about. So they can get the full cash price for those medications. That's all they're looking at. They're not looking at it from the patient Mm. safety standpoint. Interesting. That's so frustrating. Like, (laughs) oh yeah. So when you get those calls from the pharmacist, I say, take it with, okay, they are trying to do their best. They probably don't have a reference. They don't have the education to know the information, but be glad they're calling. If they're calling, it means they're not just changing it. And so Being professional, explaining, yes, here it is. I've double-checked the dose. I'm dosing at this many megs per keg. The patient weighs this much. So yes, I'm good with the dose. And I know it's high. I also say on things that you know you're going to get questions on, the levothyroxine, the phenobarb, the terbinafine, those things that we know we dose higher in animals than humans. 
preemptively tell your clients that and say the pharmacist may express concern over this dose. I have double checked it. It is much higher in animals than it is in humans, which is why they'll question it. But it is appropriate for your animal. And just giving them that heads up. So if the pharmacist says something when they go to pick up the med, they're aware and prepared and like, oh, okay, yeah, my vet told me it's fine. With the NPI number issue, because pharmacies always want those, again, education, they don't usually know what that number is. It's a number that their computer system asked for. All the doctors seem to have it, so they ask for it. But it's actually a number that indicates that doctors are eligible to prescribe for Medicare or Medicaid patients. Veterinarians are only eligible to prescribe for animal patients. Animals are not eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. Therefore, veterinarians cannot legally have an NPI number. Most pharmacists have no idea that that actually is the case. So again, I say education. They call. They say, I need an NPI number. Educate on why vets don't have that. And maybe it'll prevent their call in the future because now they'll know. Yeah, I usually will tell pharmacists or tell my CSRs to tell pharmacists that NPIs or NDC numbers, you know, NDCs on the label. Yeah, NPI numbers only exist in, on the human side and they're not appropriate, but like they just don't exist in veterinary medicine. And I just arm my CSRs with that so that they know right off the bat, they can just tell them like, nope, sorry, move on. <laughs> yep. So a while ago, I think at our mid-year meeting for vet partners, you're a vet partners member, uh, David and I are as well. We have a lot of vet partner members that come on the show. And a while ago, you were on a panel that discussed control drugs and DEA compliance. And boy, was it a hot button. It is, right? It's a hot button in practices. I say that because it is, but I go into practices on a regular basis and their DEA compliance is in the toilet. And they think because you know their tramadol count was accurate that they're compliant. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord, baby Jesus, help us now. So talk to us about the need for compliance, because I don't hear a lot about veterinary inspectors or DEA inspectors ever coming in and saying, hey, let's see that your books or your logs or your protocols are in place. We don't hear a lot about that. And so if nobody's monitoring it, why do we need to be compliant? And why is it important for us to make sure that we are compliant, even if nobody is evaluating it or is coming in and auditing and inspecting. Yeah, all of that completely agree. And I say that DEA compliance is preventative care for the practice. When we talk to clients about the need for vaccines and preventatives for fleas, ticks, heartworm, we talk about how it is cheaper to prevent than it is to treat the disease when you get it. And that's the case with DEA compliance. It is cheaper to prevent and do it appropriately than to deal with the issue if the DEA happens to show up at your door. Because with the laws, if they show up, the fines are over $15,000 per citation. And if you didn't log things that should have been logged, every single time you miss that could count as a separate citation. I've actually been told multiple times by the DEA agents uh, that I've worked with in Illinois that they are well aware that veterinarians are awful at compliance and that they could walk in practices and most of them, they could find them out of business if they really wanted to. They said they don't make a habit of doing that. They would rather go from the education side, but they know they could. So they're well aware of the issues in vet med and they really want to educate. But if they start to hear about problems, they will not hesitate to show up. And so it's slightly terrifying. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Super scary. If you want additional reasons, I would say it helps curb the opioid epidemic. That's the whole goal of all the regulations and the stringent monitoring is for public health perspective, because we have... I think last year's the data was that we had over 90,000 opioid-related deaths in the U.S. in a year. 
And so it is a huge killer. So we want to try to prevent that. And then also we know that in vet med, it's ripe for theft because we have limited inventory controls. And so controls are controlled substances are not. There's ripe for theft. So controls are even more desirable. And as we get additional lockdowns on the human side, people go, oh, well, I could target Mm. the vet side because there's Mm. not as much oversight there. So it makes us ripe for people that are looking for opportunities to steal drugs to take advantage of veterinary medicine if we're not, oh, not yeah, checking all the boxes. practices right. plenty of practices that have had theft from the control wow. drug standpoint and it's yeah 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 scary. for sure yeah mm-hmm. lauren on this like compliance thing i wouldn't say it's new but this big scary thing called usp 800 and i heard about it years ago and it seemed like it was kind of oh it was a human thing or oh it's not gonna apply and then we went a little hog wild and it was like, oh my gosh, we have to be USP 800 compliant. And I don't know much about it, but I do know that essentially I think it's a guideline of both architectural, you know, like structural and like probably PPE related safety steps that we're supposed to take with certain hazardous meds. And what's interesting is if you look at some of the drugs on that list, obviously chemotherapy is on there. And so oncology practices kind of were pivoting and everybody's starting to build really fancy hoods. But also there's some meds that general practices might have on their shelves as well. So kind of a two-part question. One is like, what is USP 800? And do you think the veterinary practices are covered under it and could have kind of compliance risk there and then the second question is oh my god do we have to go build super fancy really expensive chemo hoods to give in christine which a lot of people just you know put gloves on and give so kind of curious as to your thoughts on that so 800 has been around for a long time and initially i think it came out in 2015 or so it was a oh we need to learn about this and then it did kind of go away for a while and the reason with that has to do with how usp standards end up being enforced USP is not actually a regulatory body. They write best minimum best practice standards, and then they rely on other groups to enforce those. And with the regards to the compounding standards, there is 795, which is non-sterile compounding, 797, that's sterile compounding, and 800, that is hazardous drug compounding. In the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act at the federal level, they reference 795 and 797 standards. State boards of pharmacy also referenced those. The thing was that USP 800 was not referenced by either of those standards. So they wrote USP 800, but it ended up being an informational only thing that wasn't really enforceable anywhere. What has changed, or is changing though, is that USP, after many years of work, I think we're at seven or eight at this point, has pushed out and has final versions of their new 795 and 797. Those go into effect on November 1st. And those do reference 800. So to be compliant with those standards, which are legally required for compounding, if it involves a hazardous drug, it's also going to require compliance with 800. That's what's going to make 800 legally enforceable in the human pharmacy world. Then the question becomes, what actually is the application in VetMed? And a little bit of how that's enforced depends on the state. It depends on how the state enforces compounding and if the pharmacy board is enforcing it for vets or if the vet board is in charge of overseeing the vets. The trigger though, well, vets can oftentimes say, well, I don't really have to fully comply with 795 and 797. Those are written designed for patient safety. And there's maybe some things that aren't super applicable in vet med. So we can say that debate for a different day. But 800 is written for the safety of the person preparing the drug. It's not written for the safety of the patient. And it actually, the push for getting it through USP and what was written was a push from a veterinarian who got cancer 
from administering chemotherapy in a practice without sufficient safeguards. I think wow, he was in Arizona. Interesting. Yeah, wow. So it actually came from the veterinary side is how it got to USP. I think it's a hard push to say we're not going to comply with 800 when that's being pushed legally as the minimum standard for safe handling of these drugs. Now, what it actually applies to in VetMet and what you can, they call it risk evaluation to say something is going to be excluded from 800. Chemotherapy that is being manipulated. So injectables that you have to prepare have to comply. Bulk chemicals. So if you're going to use methimazole powder and make a transdermal, most vets aren't doing that in practice, but pharmacies are, then that's going to have to comply. But if you're talking about tablets, you have Tocerinib, uh, Palladia tablets on the shelf, and you dispense those. You don't have to have a fancy hood to do that. It applies to all hazardous drugs. And if you actually go to the NIOSH hazardous drug list, there's things like spironolactone, zonisamide, bethimazole, fluconazole, I believe is on there. There's a number of drugs that we use on a regular basis in veterinary medicine that we don't necessarily think of as hazardous that are on that list. But it does not mean you need a fancy hood to dispense those. It means that you need to acknowledge that they are hazardous, warn people of such, and maybe wear gloves when you prepare them. For the chemotherapy, yes, if you're doing injectable chemotherapy, you do need to have the sufficient clean room hood protections to prepare that injectable chemotherapy. Administration is more of a designated area, signpostage, PPE that you wear. That's more manageable on the administration side of it, but it's that preparing, that drawing up the injection that is going to fall under USP 800. And so those practices that are doing that, those oncology practices, do need these fancy hoods that they are building and putting into place. Because if you decide to ignore 800, maybe no one will notice. But if one of your employees gets cancer, they get disgruntled, they leave, then they could come back and say, well, I didn't have sufficient safeguards for what I was being asked to do. And it becomes an OSHA issue. I think okay. I covered all that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. I'm that like, great. Thank you. Yeah, backpedaling yeah. and thinking, okay, what yeah. are all the things, yeah. right? NIOSH, great. Yeah, okay, yeah, great. right, right, right. Yeah, good. <laughs> Um, can you talk to us about a couple mistakes that we make on a regular basis that does just stop doing this? Don't do it anymore. Absolutely. 911. So say the three biggest things that come to mind, controlled substance compliance. You must, must, must pay attention to that. I would say that if you're going to do anything in your practice and focus on that, it is to dig into those controlled substance regulations, determine where your gaps in security are, and write out your controlled substance policy for how your practice handles controlled drugs from ordering to destruction or administration. That would be number one. Big one that is, I think, easy to avoid, but it still commonly happens, is using compounded medications solely because they are cheaper than a commercially available product. That is not legal, and that sets you up for a lot of liability. If that compounding pharmacy screws up the compound, that's on them that they screwed up the compound. But they can push back and say, well, should you have ever actually prescribed this in the first place? And so Allowing clients to push for compounded drugs because you can make a cyclosporin capsule that is 98 milligrams cheaper than what you can purchase a Topica 100 milligram capsules for is not a legal reason to compound. So that I think is some low-hanging fruit that's easy enough to knock off. And then medication error handling. If we want to think about practice culture, medical errors are going to happen if people are involved. So we need to know how to handle them. Medication errors are the most common type of error that occurs in human or veterinary settings. And it's really important that errors, when they occur, are handled from the perspective of what is to blame with my process, not who is to blame. Because if we start blaming people, 
then we end up with a really poor shame culture and errors get hidden. And they can happen over and over again because whatever that process causes is not being addressed. If we're open and we have open discussions and errors are handled with a, let's look back at the process, what can we fix in the process? Then you can have really proactive discussions with near misses before harm ever gets to the patient and develop safeguards that'll work in your practice. I would like to make sure that we point out some compounded drugs that people don't necessarily realize are compounded. So I think a popular one is like Dex, Conifite, and there's it's an ear solution. I think it's um, Batrolotic, right? Batrolotic, yeah. yeah you just squeeze them all together. You not not all saying together. we approve, we don't approve right. of this, but this is what happens. <laughs> so this is something that I don't think people realize, and the and the bottle gets warm when you do it. And I think, uh, yes, <laughs> that should be like right. Or the like, so there's some good anesthetic ones, right? Like ketamine and Ace, you stick in a or Ace Torb, they'll just stick them yep. in a bottle and relabel it, and you give a CC per powder. You know what I mean? Like whatever it is. It's terrifying, but again, we're not saying that Andrea yeah, it just this. No, it just means that are in practice, right? Pet yeah. Torbal syrup. That's another yeah, one. Exactly. Right? Yeah, some yeah. of them go out and some of them are used in in practice. So at what point is a compounded medicine considered compounded? Is if it's used up in the practice, it is not, you know, is it still if it's given out to a client, it is considered compounded or not? If it's single dose, like tell us what that definition of compound is. If you are taking a commercial product and manipulating it in any way other than how it is labeled, then that's compounding. So if you're going to take Clavamox, a suspension powder, and you reconstitute it using seven mils of water instead of 14 mils to get a um, twice as concentrated solution, that's compounding because that's different than how it's labeled. If you reconstitute it with 14 mils of water, which is how it's labeled, that is not compounding. That is following the manufacturer's directions. So when you start to manipulate any of those, so you Mix a couple sedatives together in a vial to then drop doses out of. That's compounding. If you are drawing up a couple doses, mixing them in a syringe and giving it right away, then that's administration. So it's the storage aspect. If it's immediate, give all of it or discard whatever is left, then you're doing something to facilitate administration. And so that's not going to fall into compounding. If we use it up by the end of the day, like let's say we're using it all day. And so we may use it for 10 patients, but as long as it's used up by the end of the day, we're not technically storing it. Oh, you are still storing it. If it's not going uh, from mixture straight to the patient wow. immediately, it's compounding. It okay. just has that's a what I was saying. Like we'll do yeah. it like maybe even for the day. We might mix something for huh. the day and say, okay, I have Ooh. 10 patients, surgical yeah. patients. I'm going to use wow. this and make up enough high volume places. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm, going to make up enough mm-hmm. to get through my surgeries right. for the day. And that whatever's right. left over at the end of the day, I'll toss. So that's a no-no. Oh. We have to use mm-hmm. it for each individual patient or right. it's compounding. Yeah. And so the reason, like part of the reasoning or the thought process on that, and I'm not saying that it is right or wrong to do that, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but to consider if you have a manufactured vial of ketamine, you know what concentration that is because the bottle tells you. If you take some of that and you mix it with ACE or whatever you want to mix it with for sedation and you put it into a vial, you theoretically have done the math correctly, drawn up the right amounts of both, put them in the vial and labeled it with the strength that it is. But there's no, nobody's proven that you did that right. And so if the person who did that was off by Mm -hmm. a decimal point, nobody's necessarily Mm going to notice. And Mm -hmm. manufacturers have to test their product to prove it is what they say. Mm -hmm. When you're doing that in the Mm -hmm. practice, you don't have to do that. You can legally still do it, but you have that additional risk Mm. of the fact that, is it what it says it is? Maybe. Right. A lot of our listeners are practice managers, so they may or probably don't actually physically or legally own the practice. 
So what would be some of your advice? And, and we get real on the podcast. Feel, feel free to get real. If we have a practice manager who or a hospital manager that's listening and goes, my owner will not get in line with DEA stuff. Like what would be some advice you would have? So they either don't want to hear when the manager brings regs and their interpretation of the regs and where we should get better. Or frankly, the manager knows it's just a disaster and the owner is not supportive of revamping it. Identify with that owner what is going to be their push point? What's going to be their trigger that's actually going to get them to take notice? And different people are different ones. Maybe it is the bad press if the DEA shows up and starts going, oh, there's all these issues and somebody gets wind of that and takes it to the news. Maybe that's the push point. Maybe it's going to be the high dollar fines. And it's pretty easy to do a quick Google search and find a number of cases where veterinarians have been fined well over $200,000 for DEA citation issues. Um, They've lost licenses. And if you can't have controlled drugs, you can't really run a practice in most cases. So being able to identify what's going to be the push point and the trigger, you can go find examples of these cases. You can find issues, linking it back to patient safety or profit or bad publicity is what I would suggest. Find those realistic, hey, this happened here. If it happened here, it could happen to us. Yeah, the hot buttons, right? Yeah. Lauren, can you give us a piece of advice, whatever it may be, to a practice manager, or maybe it's a piece of advice that you could have told yourself uh, when you were younger, should your younger self listen? The biggest thing that I've learned is to ask why things are done the way they are. If you don't know, ask. And hopefully you get a good answer. But if you get, because that's the way we've always done it, or that's just how it's always done here, or that's the way we like to do it, that's not good enough. Push for the why behind that. Okay, fine. If that's the way it's always been done, why has it been done that way for so long? What makes it so good? If nobody could give you that answer, then maybe there's a better way to do something that you can consider. Just because something's been passed down from employee to employee for two decades doesn't mean it's the best. Things do change. And so push for that answer and ask the whys behind what things are, what's done. Fantastic. I love it. Thank you for that. I would like for you to share a story that made your chin hit the ground and made your palm go to your forehead, your eyes pop out like a pug. And for you to say, no freaking way, you can't make this shit up. Share your story with us. Okay. I've, I mean, I'm going to totally stereotype that this was a California thing to have happen uh, because it happened <laughs> while I was at Davis. Oh boy. And so we had a doctor come in and he was looking, we didn't stock metformin, which is a human oral diabetes medication. We didn't stock it there. You don't use it in animals all that often. And he came looking to get information on how to write a prescription for an outside pharmacy for this. And so we asked, we're like, well, what are you using it for? And he's like, well, technically, I'm using it for equine metabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. But what the client thinks it was being used for was to ward off UFOs. Because the (laughs) client was convinced that her horse was lame because it was being chased around the pasture by UFOs. um, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And that was its problem. And so he told the client that metformin was the perfect, the perfect drug. drug. Right. Oh my gosh. I'm like, oh. that is the best indication for a medication <laughs> I have ever heard. That is that's fantastic. Amazing. And what are the side effects of that, mm-hmm. right? right. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, that's awesome. Love it. Hey, Andrea here. Have you seen our social media pages? 
Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.positiveleaders.com. And if you like what you see there, be sure to give Rhonda and Linda a shout out over at Dog Days Consulting. They do all of our social media management. They even built our website. Those ladies can work some creative magic for your business and your brand. Check them out on Facebook at Dog Days Consulting or visit their website at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. So at this point in the show, we're going to go into the rapid fire. Tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. Failing a drug information assignment in pharmacy school. Tell me about your proudest moment. Being in Faces in the Crowd in Sports Illustrated and on the cover of the Quarter Horse Journal. Why veterinary medicine? What do you love about our profession? I love all the gray areas and the opportunity to make a difference and pursue many areas of opportunity. Self-care, how do you practice it? How do you decompress? Not particularly well, but I'm working on that. Reading, I try to take a lunch break every day and read and going for a run every morning. How do you balance work and life? And in your sense, it's not a business you manage, but it's multiple contracts and academic requirements. Do you experience any work guilt in that balance when you're turning a work life off? Oh, absolutely. I consciously make an effort to turn that off because I work better when it's off, but I don't manage work life balance well at all. What keeps you up at night? Things that stress you out or cause you anxiety in your life? My kids, not because I'm stressing, but just because. They wake me up at all hours of the night. And what gets you up and out of bed in the morning? What excites you to start your day? Also my kids, because they get up at the crack of dawn. (laughs) What color best describes you and why? Purple, because it's bright, fun, and the color of royalty. And if you could be any animal in the world, what would it be and why? A cat, because they don't care what anyone thinks. They land on their feet and they aren't afraid to demand what they want. Well, look at that. I like that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Lauren, this has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Yeah. Yeah, This has been great. I can't wait to hear the final episode. Lauren, how can our listeners find you? LinkedIn is a great way to find me. I'm on LinkedIn as Lauren Ike said, Forsyth. Yeah. LinkedIn's probably the best. Let's go with that. (laughs) Cool. Okay, great. Thanks again, Lauren. We appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you. Have a good weekend. You as well. You too. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your you can't make this shit up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast and be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, 
may not be current and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever is expressly disclaimed.